0: I'm sure it comes as no surprise to any of you that we're a nation of law and lawyers. We've got a lot of them. Of course, our our nation was founded by um, a group of people who knew the law. They knew the law of God actually rather well. Our Constitution is basically built on laws. We believe in the rule of law. And did you know, as of 2020, there are 1.3 million lawyers in America— 1.3 1.3 million, that's a lot. And I've contributed because I have a daughter and a son-in-law who are both lawyers. Um, what you, um, lo- uh, the state that has the most per capita? Any guesses? New York, yes, New York has 9.5 lawyers per 1,000 residents. Number two is Maryland, number three is Massachusetts. They love the law in the East. And do you know how much they get paid? The average billable hour? Um, money per hour? You want to guess? This is the average. $300 an hour. That is the average. Um, $300 an hour right now. And, um, and of course, um, uh, uh, Eng- we have way more lawyers than anywhere else in the world. Way more. We must really love lawyers and law because um, we have per capita three times as many law- lawyers as England has. And there are lawyers everywhere in England, and we have three times as many And you want to know how much we love laws in this country? This will shock you. Our federal tax code, and we might have some tax people here, has 44,000 pages, 5.5 million words, 721 different forms. It has four times more words than the Bible. And it has... More than two and a half million pages of regulations. Two and a half million pages. And that's why we have so many lawyer jokes. By the way, how many lawyer jokes are there? Only three. The rest are true. (laughs) So, how is our love of lawyers doing for us? as a country. Well, if you know anything about it, it is not doing well. We have more incarcerated people in this country than almost anywhere else on earth. Did you know that we have one lawyer for every two people in prison? That's our present rate. Right? Um, This is Tacitus, who was the Roman um, historian around the time of the Bible. He wrote this. In a state where corruption abounds, laws must be very numerous. So what he's saying is that the more laws you have, the more corruption you probably have to try to stem the tide of all your corruption. There's a man whose name is Stephen Maggie. He um, is a professor of finance and economics at the University of Texas. He came up with what's called the Maggie Curve. And he believes that one of the things that hurt, destroys an economy, is too many lawyers. And in fact, his curve um, says that we have 40% more lawyers than we need for the optimal growth of our economy. 40% more than we need. So, we love laws. We live in a nation of laws. And this morning we're going to talk about law and laws. Because our text of scripture here, Romans 7, 1 to 12, I titled, Death to the Law. I didn't make that up. That's exactly what Paul said. Death to the law. Now, obviously, we don't believe that in America because we have people uh, churning out more and more and more laws all the time. And again, it's not working. We believe that the more laws you have, the more you'll have a law-abiding society. The truth is that it does not work that way. In fact, it works quite the opposite. Now, in our text of Scripture today, you're going to see the word law appears over and over and over again. In fact, in Romans chapter 7 the word law appears 23 times. The Bible does this, by the way. In fact, one of the main ways that you can understand what a passage of Scripture is trying to teach is look for repetition. It's the easiest principle in the world, and you're almost always right, 100% of the time. The main thought of any passage of the Bible will be based on the repetition of words. It's like Paul says, okay, I know you might be a little bit dense, but you're going to get this one 23 times. I'm going to tell you law, 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 23 times. Plus the word commandments. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the law of Moses. What Myron was talking with the children about. Summarized in the Ten Commandments. That's what the law is that he's going to talk about. But it applies to all kinds of laws as well. So today, you're going to see the word law, and the Apostle Paul is going to try to explain what is the value of law for a Christian who's trying to live the Christian life. How does the law fit into that? Now, by the way, Paul is Jewish, and what he has said so far is very, very offensive to Jewish people. Because they believe deeply that the key to righteousness is following the law of God. And in fact, I don't think there's an observant Jew anywhere in the world, not even one, not one, you will find any in the world, if you ask them this question, how many laws of God are there? I don't think you'll find one in the world who wouldn't say 613. They know them all. And because the 613 is not enough, they have added thousands of laws to that 613. The 613 come from the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. That's called the law of Moses. There's 613 commands there. Many Jewish people know all of them. You think the 10 commandments is tough? They know all 613. But as the reason we have lawyers is because you cannot possibly make any statement that a lawyer can't pick out, pick apart. For example, if I use a one-word statement, go, you need a lawyer. Who, what, where, when, why, how? All of those have to be explained. So when you have a law, for example, as ambiguous as remember the Sabbath to keep it holy and you shall not work. You need, you need a thousand lawyers for that one. What does remember mean? What does holy mean? What does Sabbath mean? What does work mean? And so the Jewish people, the rabbis, took it upon themselves to take all of these 613 laws and then describe in minute detail what each one of those laws means practically in people's lives. So, again, there's not an observant Jew anywhere in the world. Not one. If you ask them, How many categories of work are there? By the way, how many? No one's Jewish here. Okay. (laughs) 39. Every Jewish person knows there's 39 categories of work. The rabbis had to find them. And this is all in Jesus' day. All of it's there. And because Jesus' disciples did not keep Some of these 39 categories. Remember when his disciples went into the field and they were hungry. They took some of the grain, rubbed it in their hands, and ate it. The religious leaders saw them and said, Your disciples are breaking the law. Because four of those 39 categories of work, they broke. And Jesus says, No, no, no. I'm sorry. This is not from God. God. You made this up. This is not from God. This is not God's law. They said, oh, yes it is. And that's why Jesus was rejected as the Messiah. Among other reasons, they say, he does not follow the law. He said, and Jesus said, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter of this law will not be accomplished. I did not come to violate this law. I came to fulfill it. Every single command of God, as it was intended by God himself, Jesus fulfilled perfectly. But the additions to the law that people had come up with, stuck it right in their face. How dare you do this to God's law? And so now in Jesus' day, when this was written, Paul, of course, is a few years after Jesus, you have thousands and thousands of laws that people are trying to obey because they believe deeply this is the route to godliness. And Paul says, death to the law. And he's Jewish. And he's an eminent, he was an eminent rabbi trained by the top rabbi in the world. And he says, death to the law. So you can imagine, they're not very pleased. Because in his audience in Rome to which he's writing, there are many Jewish people. They say, Paul, how dare you put down God's law? God gave this law to us. How can you put it down? And now he's going to try to answer that question because in his day, people had associated faithfulness to God with obeying God's rules. And by the way, that is the essence of every religion on earth today. If you're Muslim, it's the five pillars of Islam. If you're Buddhist, it's the eightfold path of Buddha. If you're Jewish, it's the 613 commands of Moses. Every religion, including unfortunately Christianity, says these are the rules. You want to be a godly person? Here are the rules. Follow them. And Paul says, not on your life. They don't work. So, welcome with me to Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 12. Now you see right away up there, you see the word law? Don't you know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law... Has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. Now, we know that to be true. Not only are laws only subject to you as long as you live, but laws are specific to different countries in the world. So, for example, um, the laws of the U.S. government are not in effect in England, for example. They have a different set of laws. Each country has its own set of laws, and each state has different laws, and each community has different laws. You're only subject to the laws of the particular community in which you live, or the country in which you live. But if you die, those laws don't apply to you. You can't get a speeding ticket if you're dead, because you're dead. The law does not apply to you. And so Paul begins, as he does with almost every section in the book of Romans, every section begins, not all of them, but most of them, with a question. And here's his question. Don't you know that the law is only valid f- for living people? It does not apply to dead people. Um, in fact, even the Jewish people, this is from the, 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 what's called the Mishnah. This is the oral law of the Jewish people. Quote, If a person is dead, he is free from the Torah and the fulfilling of the commandments. So, death changes one's relationship to the law because the law does not apply to dead people. That's the first principle. Now the Apostle Paul is going to bring it home to us with an example. This is verses 2 to 3. For example... There's the word law. By law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. That's obvious. Many people, as, as long as you, your spouses are alive, you have taken vows You've taken them before a court. You've signed your name. I will be faithful. Obviously that many of us violate those those vows. But once your spouse passes away, you are free to marry somebody else because the law, the vows you took, are no longer valid once your spouse dies. That's pretty obvious. And so he goes on. So then, If she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. We all know that. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, now he's going to draw the conclusion. So then, so my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Now, he's, remember, he starts, here's the principle. The law is only binding on a person as long as they are al- alive. Once you've died, the law has no bearing on you anymore. For example, in marriage. In marriage, you are under obligation to be faithful to, and to love each other, as you said when you took your vows, But when one spouse dies, that law is nullified to you, and you are free to marry another. And now he's going to apply it to us. We died. Remember earlier on in chapter 6, he says, you have died to sin. But now he says, you have died to the law. Whoa. What does that mean? Um, um, let Let me try to put it in this way. Since we're using marriage, let me use that. In our first marriage, this is not talking about... In our first marriage, we were married to me, a woman, whose name was Party Hardy. That was her name. Party Hardy. That's called paganism. And many people today, that's, that's the spouse you're married to. You're out for each other's happiness, and party-hardy is what your, your goal is, and what keeps that marriage together is your passions, but it bears fruit. That's called death. And let's say as Christians we died. We died to that marriage. It's gone. And so now in our second marriage... We got married again, and now the second one we're married to is not party-hardy. She's got a new name. The new name is Follow the Rules. That's my new spouse. Follow the Rules. And for a while, that works. But if a marriage is only based on following the rules... Now, I have to say three times today that I love her, and I better make sure at least three minutes I listen to her and... Follow the rules. That makes for a really good marriage, doesn't it? That stinks. That's not what you... What do you want? You don't want somebody that simply follows the rules. You want a relationship with a human being. So that marriage doesn't work, but that's the marriage most of us are in right now, even as Christians. But there's a better marriage. Not only have we died to party hardy, we should die to follow the rules because we have another one. We're married to... Christ Jesus That's the one. And and as a result, we serve our we serve in a new way of the spirit and we bear fruit as it says for God verses 5 and 6 say for when we were controlled by the sinful nature The sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. There's the first marriage. There's hearty party. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit. There's there's marriage number two. Follow the rules. But we've been released from that one. Now, we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now, the Apostle Paul is going to tell us throughout the book of Romans and in his other letters, like Galatians, what are, are the limitations of the law. Um, the law of God, we're going to find in the second section of this passage, is good, but it is limited. Here are some of the things that Paul has said thus far and is going to say in this book. The law silences you it should silence every claim you have of your own righteousness before God that's one of the things the law does the law condemns you it does not commend you how many of you have been pulled over by a police officer and given a citation for good driving no one why not? The law doesn't commend you, it only condemns you. It can't commend. That's not the purpose of the law. The law, Paul tells us in verse chapter 4, that where we've been, the warm the law brings wrath. It does not bring warm fuzzies. It doesn't work that way. You see, the law increases sin. It doesn't diminish sin. It stimulates sin. It doesn't stifle sin. The law doesn't work. One of the incredible passages of Scripture is found in Acts chapter 15. It's one of the pivotal chapters in the whole Bible. It's one you should know. It's what's called the Jerusalem Council. Here in the early days of Christianity, like 20 years after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the church was riddled with incredible conflict The conflict was, was, what do we do now with these Gentiles who are now flooding into the church? For the first 10 years of the church's history, there was not even one Gentile. They were not allowed. It wasn't until about 10 years after Jesus that kicking and screaming, they brought the first Gentile into the church. And that was a problem. Guess why? Gentiles ate bacon with their eggs. That is the problem, by the way. They ate bacon with their eggs. They had all these things that these Gentiles did normally that Jewish people didn't do. They were not circumcised. What horror. So, what are you going to do now when you have these Gentiles in this church that's primarily Jewish? What do you tell these Gentiles with regard to obeying the law of Moses? And they had a huge fight. And in that fight, you had a group of people who said, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You accept Jesus as your Savior, and you follow the law of Moses. All of it. People like Paul and Peter said, no. Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. We don't need the sacrifices of the Day of Atonement anymore. Jesus was the sacrifice to which all of that pointed. And so they said, no, we don't impose the Mosaic law on the Gentile Christians. And they had a huge fight. And then Peter says this. (laughs) The guy's marvelous. Peter said, now then, why do we try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. How dare, how dare us try to put on the Gentiles commandments we never kept in our whole lifetime? That's called hypocrisy times a hundred. We say to the Gentiles, you better follow the law of God and we don't follow it ourselves. We've never followed the law of God. That's why we've been punished as we have for all of our history. That's what Peter said. You see, the law doesn't work. The law cannot produce righteousness. Remember, earlier in chapter 3, this is what Paul wrote. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. No one. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Wow. One of the things that you must watch out for and yet it's everywhere, is that we Christians are very fond of telling people, this is the way you live a holy life. Follow the rules. And here are the rules. We come up with our rules. And some of them are additions to the scriptures that aren't even in the Bible. But there are rules. That's not the route that Paul is going to push us on. He's got a different route. Well, it's almost as if in the first six verses, the Apostle Paul said to Jewish people, his own people, hey, by the way, guys, the law is bad. And that's not true either. Because the law is good. And so now after the Apostle Paul has shown what the limitations of the law are, now he's going to show us what's, um, what, what, how the law can school us, can help us. So here's verse 7. What should we say then? Is the law sinful or is it bad? Now he's trying, he's, he's just following the natural logic of people. If what you said is true, Paul, then God's law is bad. Why? So that means God is bad because he gave us a bad law. No, certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. So he, he, he begins by saying, um, the, the law tells us what is right and wrong. There's so much that you would not just gain by uh, just thinking about life. Because as you know, in our country today, we're changing the standards of right and wrong every single day. We, would, we don't know what's right and wrong. In fact, we're in a world now where everyone can have their own standard of what's right and wrong. We wouldn't know from a standard above us, the standard of God, what is right and wrong if the law had not told us what is right and wrong. The law has defined what sin is. But then Paul turns to his own personal life. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet you see, people have moral codes everywhere in the world all the time. They differ a little bit, they're somewhat similar. But Paul got to the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet, and it really tripped him up. Guess what? You can't possibly make a law against coveting. Why not? Thou shalt not commit murder, you can make laws. Thou shalt not bear false witness, you can make laws. Thou shalt, um, uh, remember the Sabbath, we have blue laws. You can make laws with regard to the nine commandments, but now he got to the 10th, and it's not behavioral. It's an attitude of the heart. How do you make laws about an attitude of the heart? Paul said, I've kept the laws until I came to number 10 and then I was in trouble. Look what happened. Once he came to the rule thou shalt not covet, the next verses say, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting for apart from the law, sin was dead. He said, this commandment when added to the law, caused sin to blossom inside of me. Because what God is trying to do with the 10th commandment, and we forget this, is sin is not just behavioral. Sin is attitudinal. When, when Myron was here with the children, um, he asked if any of them had committed murder. And how many hands went up? None. Now let me ask you, how many of you have committed murder? Oh, you have not listened to the Lord Jesus. Have, you, has, have any of you ever been angry? Anyone? Any, no, any, how many have been angry? Jesus said, you are a murderer. I'm not going to ask how many have committed adultery, but I will ask, how many have had a lustful thought? Well, just two of us, I guess. Um, We're adulterers. You see, when, when you think of the law only behaviorally, you can convince yourself that you've committed, that you've not broken the law. But coveting is the one that Paul says, well, wait a minute. Desiring things I don't have that other people have? I, I do that all the time, and when I let that happen inside of me, all I start, it all springs to life inside of me. You see, the reason for the commandment against coveting, God's trying to say, no people, people, people. What you're going to do is you're going to define sin behaviorally, but it's much deeper, much broader than that. And if you only define it behaviorally, you're going to be able to convince yourself that you're righteous in your own eyes. And you will be someone who can never go to heaven. That's huge. Because the only sin that keeps us out of heaven is self-righteousness. It's the only one. But if you can convince yourself that you are righteous in the eyes of God, you can't go to heaven. Everyone who knows that they have fallen short of the glory of God, is a candidate from heaven. So in other words, the only people who can possibly get into heaven are bad people. No one good goes there. Because if you did, you'd ruin the place. Only bad people go to heaven. And if you went on any street, anywhere in the world, and you asked people, who goes to heaven, good or bad people? Everyone, 99.9% would say, oh, good people go to heaven. No, they don't. They can't go to heaven. Only people who understand they've fallen short. And sin is not just what we do. It's way deeper than that. So deep we can't even imagine what it's really like. And so Paul goes on. Once I was alive apart from the law. When I didn't realize that coveting was something, hey, I I, I never committed murder, I, I... I haven't committed adultery. I've I've, I've been scrupulously honest. Once I was alive, but when the commandment came, thou shalt not covet, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. And it goes on. For sin... Sin. You see, sin is not behavioral. It's in my nature. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy. It's righteous, and it is good. How so? Well, the, the commandments of God, they reflect God's holy character. Why does God say, don't commit adultery? I mean, uh, don't practice idolatry. Because idolatry takes a physical object, places it here, and says, this is God. But it can't be because God is a spirit. Idolatry, by definition, defies the nature of God. Why does God say, to remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy? Well, because God, through his example in creation, rested on the seventh day. Why does God say we should not commit murder? Because human beings are made in the image of God. Why are we not to commit adultery? Well, because God is faithful to his covenants. Why do we not lie? Because God cannot lie. You see, the laws of God reflect his character, but they also define what holiness and sin looks like. God's law protects us from the ravages of sin. Consider what happens to a society that promotes the dishonoring of parents, that condones the murder of the innocents, that winks at adultery and encourages all manner of sexual sin, that frowns on private property, that supports legalized theft, that fudges on truth-telling and builds an economy around the stimulation of covetousness. Sound familiar? You know what that's called? America. What happens to that? it cannot survive. You see, God's laws are designed to protect us from the ravages of sin. Sin gone wild, when we throw away God's laws, it has incredibly disastrous effects on human dignity and goodness because God's trying to protect us. Now, you have to ask yourself a question when you look at God's Old Testament laws... What was he thinking? What was God thinking? For example, no bacon or shrimp. What's he thinking? They're so good. Or do not cook a goat in its mother's milk. Come on, God. Or do not wear clothing woven with two kinds of material. Or wear tassels on the four corners of the cloak you wear. I mean, of these 613 commandments, I just gave you four or five of them. Some of them are just ridiculous. Let's be honest. Is there something that's going to hurt you if I have linen and wool in my clothes? What's God up to? We don't know. In fact, I think bacon is pretty good and shrimp is even better. No lobster? Come on. Are you an ogre, God? You see, people have tried to figure out, well, what did God have in mind? And I think the answer that most theologians have come to is, we have no idea what he had in mind, except this. He's trying to communicate to his holy people that they are different. There may be no other reason than that. No, I want you to be a different people. You are a light to the nations. You are not to be part and parcel of everyone else around you. You're different. You're my people. That's part of the reason for the law. The law sets uh, standards for societies. Most of our law and even our due process laws, our bankruptcy law, comes from the Word of God. Why? Because God cares about us. Our whole jurisprudential system, most of it comes from the Bible. Most people don't know that. You see, the law is good because it forces us to look at ourselves it not only reveals our sin, but it even stimulates our sin. And what's the good of looking at it, being able to look into the mirror and see our sin? Oh God, what's good about that? We know that we know that we know that we need a Savior. Oh, that's, that's really good. And maybe that's what God is trying to do. So, as we conclude this morning, I'm going to ask if you can make three shifts in the way that we live our lives. The first one is this. Can you consider trying to live your life as an ambassador rather than a regular ordinary citizen? One of the, one of the, the privileges of an ambassador is that they have diplomatic immunity. So an ambassador from, let's say, an African country, Ghana, who comes to the United States, is not subject to our laws. They're dead to our laws. They're governed by the laws of Ghana, not the United States. And so this is what has happened. This is 20 years old. As of the year 2001, more than 200,000 outstanding parking tickets in New York alone, totaling more than $21.3 million. The diplomats have come into New York City with the, the UN and amassed $23 million as of 20 years ago. So it's way over $50 million now of unpaid parking tickets And they never have to pay them. Why? They're not subject to our laws. And in fact, diplomats in America have committed drug smuggling, tax evasion, slavery, murder, parking violations, and drunk driving, all of those, and there's no possibility to ever bring them before a court. Impossible. Why? Diplomatic immunity. And this is the word of God. You are Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through you, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We have diplomatic immunity. But the worst thing an ambassador could ever do would be to abuse this high, high position. Because they represent somebody else. We represent Jesus. We are not subject to the Mosaic law. We have a higher law. We represent Jesus. He is our king. And we are his his ambassadors. Can you start to see yourself as an ambassador? Not subject to the laws, but subject to a king. Number two. What if we started to see ourselves as fruit bearers instead of sin avoiders? It seems to me that most of what we teach people in churches is this is these are the sins and this is how not to do them. That is a mistake. Because the more we do that the more we sin. It's going to do the exact opposite. Instead of focusing on the negative, what we shouldn't do, we should focus on the positive. Who we are, that's our identity. We sang about it this morning. Who we are and what God has made us to be. If you focus on the negative, you will get worse. If you focus on the positive, you will become who God created you to be. Don't drift toward the sin avoidance. You won't succeed. Focus on, God, what do you want me to do each day? Holy Spirit, lead me to be the person you want me to be. And when you do that, guess what happens to sin? Just kind of falls away. That's number two and number three. We have to start seeing ourselves as people who are in Christ, rather than people who are in trouble. <laughs> who are the best? Who in America knows the law the best? Besides lawyers, who said it? Who, who said? Well, who is it? Criminals. Criminals. You people don't know squat about the law. I promise you. You don't know anything about the law. Do you know why you don't know much about the laws? Because you don't break them. You have no inclination to break them. You've internalized the law. That's why you don't break the law. You know who knows every law? Criminals. We, we act ourselves as if we're criminals. We're not criminals. We're in Christ. That's who we are if we saw ourselves as as people who are in Christ rather than in trouble, you see, the laws are not that important. A relationship with Jesus is. Someone has said that, this. A good lawyer knows the law. A great lawyer knows the judge. (laughs) Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Wow, your word is powerful. It's quick, powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, you say. And you go right to our heart, but when you do so, you mend our hearts and you turn us toward Jesus. And we come face to face with the judge who loves us. May that be how we respond to your holy word in this, this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, please stand with me as we leave this morning Um, and as you leave this morning may we each see ourselves as ambassadors regard ourselves as people who are in Christ and may we internalize the law such that by the power of the Holy Spirit we follow Jesus God bless you.